Good day, and welcome to the Bristol-Myers Squibb 2020 Fourth Quarter Results Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Mr. Tim Power, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, sir. Thanks, Lauren, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for our fourth quarter 2020 earnings call. Joining me this morning with prepared remarks as usual are Giovanni Caforio, our board chair and chief, chief executive officer, and David Elkins, our chief financial officer. And also taking part in today's call are Chris Vernon, our chief commercialization officer, and Sonam Hirawat, our chief medical officer and head of global drug development. Uh, you'll note that we've posted slides to BMS.com that you can use to follow along with for, for Giovanni and David's remarks. But before we get started, let me read our forward-looking statement. During today's call, we'll make statements about the company's future plans and prospects to constitute forward-looking statements. Actual results may differ materially from those indicated by these forward-looking statements as a result of various important factors, including uh, those discussed in the company's SEC filings. These forward-looking statements represent our estimates as of today and should not be relied upon as representing our estimates as of any future date. We specifically disclaim any obligation to update forward-looking statements, even if our estimates change. We'll also focus our comments on our non-GAAP financial measures, which are adjusted to exclude certain specified items. Reconciliations of those non-GAAP financial measures, the most comparable GAAP measures, are available at BMS.com. And with that, let me hand over to Giovanni. Thank you, Tim, and good morning, everyone. I hope you're all staying safe and healthy. I want to open by saying I'm really proud of what we accomplished in 2020. Our teams executed well commercially, advanced our pipeline, kept our integration efforts ahead of schedule, and executed important business development activities. We did this while managing through the complexities of the pandemic, keeping our teams safe and our patients at the center of everything we do. Turning to slide four. In Q4, we delivered another strong quarter. Commercial performance was strong, with sales increasing 10% compared to performance sales for the same period in the prior year. And we made significant progress to advance our pipeline. Of note, we continue to make progress with our launches, including good momentum for a bioplastiervoid in first line lung, which supports our confidence in a return to growth of Obdivo this year. Reblozil, which has seen a strong launch with rapid adoption in MDS. Siposia, which is well positioned as the S1P modulator of choice in multiple sclerosis, and Onureg, which is the only oral option with overall survival benefit in first-line AML response maintenance. We closed the acquisition of myocardia, bringing us Navarcanton and strengthening our existing presence in cardiovascular. During the quarter, we also continued to advance our pipeline, including regulatory filings and approvals in our IO, immunology, and hematology portfolio. Most recently, with positive top-line results for Dupravacitinib in psoriasis. We demonstrated strong financial results enabling an increased non-GAAP earnings per share outlook for 2021. As you will have just seen, we have entered into a licensing arrangement with the Rockefeller University for the development of a dual antibody combination for the treatment of COVID-19. Though early, we believe this treatment could be differentiated with the potential for low-dose subcutaneous administration. We are pleased to partner with Rockefeller University and leverage our expertise in antibody technology and strength in development, manufacturing, and distribution to bring this potential option to patients. Moving to slide five, let me put the performance from the quarter and full year 2020 into context. Thanks to excellent execution throughout the year, we have continued to deliver on all value drivers of the cell gene acquisition and laid a strong foundation for future growth of our new company. We are well positioned to accelerate the renewal of our portfolio and support the long-term growth of our business. Last month at J.P. Morgan, I shared why I have confidence in the future of Bristol-Myers Squibb. The integration of Celgin has gone very well. Based on progress last year, we now expect total synergies to be close to 3 billion 
by the end of 22. We have proven commercial capabilities, which enable us to fully realize the opportunities to grow our inline portfolio and support strong execution of our launches. The breadth and depth of our late-stage pipeline is reflected in the significant number of milestones delivered last year. Finally, our financial strength makes it possible for us to continue to invest in future growth, internally and externally through business development. Now, turning to slide six. Overall, we are in a strong position to unlock the potential of the company we planned to build when we acquired Celgene. We're building a company with a younger, more diversified portfolio of medicines, better positioned in the second half of the decade. Let me remind you where we believe we are heading. We are confident we can more than offset the impact of near-term tariff expiries, including revenue. We expect to grow our revenue and earnings through 2025, with low to mid-single-digit revenue CAGR for 2025, driven by the significant growth potential of our continuing business, which is comprised of our inline growth drivers and our launch brand. We see strong momentum for this portfolio, which excludes Redlimit and Pomalist, with low double-digit revenue CAGR during the same period. Looking out to 2025, we expect the continuing business will represent approximately 90% of the company, with 30% of that revenue from our newly launched products. Importantly, looking out to the second half of the decade on slide seven, we have multiple sources of portfolio renewal. Our recently launched products will continue to grow. Most have significant expansion opportunities beyond the launching mitigation. We have a rich mid to late stage pipeline with assets such as our factor 11A inhibitor and our multiple myeloma cellmates, cabrodamide and CC92480. We will continue to advance our diverse early R&D portfolio and further invest in business development opportunities, just as we have done with myocardium. We can, while maintaining very strong with operating margins expected in the low to mid 40s. Turning to execution scorecard on slide eight, at JP Morgan, I outlined several important milestones that would support our success. And as mentioned, we've already delivered on a number of those. Oblivo plus Cabo was recently approved by the FDA for patients with first-line RCC. This week, we delivered the second positive phase three for ducrovacitinib in plaque psoriasis, supporting the filing of this potential new therapy to help authorities in the near term. Ziposia was filed for the treatment of ulcerative colitis in the U.S., and we look forward to launching that indication later this year. Moving to slide nine, as we think about this year, based on the strength of our business and the exciting opportunities ahead, we are increasing our non-GAAP earnings per share guidance for 21. David will provide more details on the financials, but let me offer some perspective on key areas of focus in 21. Commercially, we expect revenue growth across key businesses, driven in large part by the continued execution of our recent launches, Obdivo's return to growth, and Eliquis. We will continue to advance our pipeline and have important milestones ahead this year, such as filing Matacanton, phase two data for factor 11A, proof of concept data for glucosidinib in ulcerative colitis, and initial data for iberdamide in refractory multiple myeloma. We will maintain a balanced approach to capital allocation. Disciplined business development is a top priority and provides an opportunity to further invest in future growth. David will provide more color on our consistent approach to capital allocation in a few minutes. This year, we also anticipate the U.S. policy environment will continue to evolve, and I'm confident the diversification of our portfolio will help us navigate potential changes. We agree 
the patient affordability needs to be improved, and we are supportive of policies that can address this issue. We look forward to working with the new administration and congressional leaders to foster an environment that supports innovation and enhances patient access to medicines. To close, I am encouraged by the strength and momentum across the company. Across our four key therapeutic areas of hematology, oncology, cardiovascular, and immunology, we have leading inline medicines, significant short-term launch opportunities, and a rich pipeline. Our diversified portfolio and leading position in each business allows us to be less dependent on any one product or business. I'm also immensely proud of our employees. Their talent is second to none, and that commitment is inspiring. I feel very good about the future of Bristol-Myers Squibb and the potential that lies before us. I will now hand it over to David to walk you through the financials. David? Thank you, Giovanni, and hello, everyone, and thanks again for joining our call today. Um, if you turn to slide 11, I'd like to discuss our robust top-line performance for the quarter. Our teams continue to operate well in a virtual environment, delivering very strong quarterly and four-year results. For the fourth quarter, revenues grew 10% on a performance basis versus prior year, reflecting strong execution across the world. During the quarter, we also saw approximately $250 million of favorable inventory bills versus the third quarter, primarily driven by Eloquence and Revlimid, as well as a 2% favorable impact from foreign exchange. Full-year revenues were equally strong and reflect the performance growth of 7%. I'll now provide additional color on the performance of our key brands and new launches. Now, starting with Eloquence on slide 12, global sales continue to perform very well, growing double digits for both the fourth quarter and the full year. In the U.S., Fourth quarter sales increased 6% versus prior year, driven by robust 17% TRX growth, and an inventory bill partially offset by expected higher growth to net impact from the coverage gap. Inventory bill versus prior quarter was approximately $100 million. So we saw total new scripts for oral anticoagulants declining during last year due to COVID. We are starting to see naive volumes return to pre-COVID levels. Internationally, sales remain strong, with revenue of approximately $1 billion, growing 19% versus prior year. Eloquence continues to be the number one NOAC in multiple key markets internationally, including Germany, France, and the UK. Both in the U.S. and internationally, we believe that the growth outlook for Eloquence remains strong as we continue to grow the oral anticoagulant class, as well as increasing our share within the class. Turning to slide 13, global sales of Optiva grew 2% in the fourth quarter versus prior year, primarily driven by strong growth in international markets. In the U.S., the teams continue to execute well, largely through remote engagement. During the fourth quarter, we saw an expected unwind of favorable inventory we discussed last quarter. Importantly, our first-line lung cancer continues to go very well, with our share now in the low double-digit range. This is visible by the strong 20% sales growth of year avoiding the quarter versus prior year. We continue to work through the pressure of our second line indication, which is stabilizing, and now starting to be balanced out by the momentum we are building in first line lung. We remain very confident in the return to growth for Optivo in the U.S. this year. We expect continued growth in first line lung, combined with launches and additional indications, including first-line renal with the recent approval of Vivo plus Cobble and the opportunity to be the first IOA agent in first-line gastric, as well as several new adjuvant launches. Internationally, we continue to see strong commercial execution with growth primarily driven by first-line melanoma and RCC as we continue to secure reimbursement around the world. We are pleased with the recent Japanese approvals and the launch in first-line lung with a broad label in all comers as well as the EU approval of 9LA, and we'll be working on securing reimbursements in various countries throughout 2021. Now, moving to our inline multiple myeloma portfolio on slide 14. Revlimid and Pomelis continue to perform very well with strong double-digit quarterly growth on a performance basis. Globally, Revlimid grew 18%, primarily driven by continued increase in treatment duration. 
In the U.S., fourth quarter revenues increased 15%, primarily driven by solid demand and inventory build compared to prior year. The inventory build versus prior quarter was approximately $100 million, and we expect this inventory build to reverse in the first quarter. Outside the U.S., revenues were strong, with growth of 24% in the fourth quarter versus prior year, due to growth in the triple combinations, which include new reimbursement for RVD in several countries. We should note that this strong revenue growth included an earlier-than-expected tender of approximately $80 million. Commerce's global performance revenues continue to reflect significant growth, up 21%. In the U.S., performance revenues increased 18%, and internationally up 27%, driven by increased usage in earlier lines and longer treatment durations. As we look to the first quarter of 2021, our image portfolio, in addition to the inventory bill in the U.S., I would like to remind you of the typical seasonality of Revlimid and Palmos experience to patients entering the Medicare coverage gap earlier in the year. Now, moving on to our recent launches on slide 15, our new launches contributed just over $300 million in 2020. Revlizel is off to a great start with global revenues in the year of $274 million. In the U.S., we experienced significant pent-up demand from the MDS launch in Q2 and Q3. And during the fourth quarter, we began to see expected evolution from the original bolus to true underlying demand. We continue to expect growth through new patient starts early in their treatment journey. Internationally, initial launches in Germany and Austria are going very well. We continue our launches in various markets globally over the course of 2021 as we receive reimbursement. Now, turning to Symposia, strong commercial access has been secured with greater than 90% of U.S. commercial lives covered. We remain focused on driving demand and establishing Symposia as the leading S1P modulator in multiple sclerosis. Outside U.S., we have now launched in Germany, Switzerland, Canada, the Netherlands, and Norway, and will continue to secure reimbursement in other markets throughout the year. In addition to our MS launch, we now have a producer date for Symposia in UC in May, and look forward to building momentum of this differentiated medicine. And MAA has been validated in Europe, and we will work with the European health authorities to bring this medicine to patients as soon as possible. Moving on to ANURE, initial feedback from physicians has been very positive in establishing ANURE as the first and only oral treatment to demonstrate an overall survival benefit for first-line AML maintenance patients. With the data now published in the New England Journal of Medicine, we are focusing on educating physicians on this new maintenance therapy for patients. The MAA remains under review in the EU with approval expected this year. Now, moving to our balance sheet and capital allocation on slide 16, you'll see we continue to generate a significant amount of cash flow from operations of approximately $3.4 billion in the fourth quarter. We ended the quarter in a strong liquidity position with approximately $16 billion in cash and marketable securities. Our capital allocation priorities are unchanged. Business development remains top priority. We're committed to reducing our debt and returning capital to shareholders. With respect to business development, we plan to focus on strengthening our pipeline on mid-size, bolt-on deals that further strengthen the company into the second half of the decade. We will remain disciplined with respect to deals that we execute and consistent with our criteria of being strategically aligned, scientifically sound, and financially attractive. As it relates to reducing debt, we will continue to be focused on this, further strengthening our ability to invest for growth. This morning, we announced a debt reduction transaction of up to $4 billion. The bonds we are targeting, we still expect to see our leverage ratio reduced by one and a half times debt to EBITDA in 24. Importantly, we are committed to a strong investment grade credit rating, which is apparent through our willingness to use excess cash to proactively accelerate debt reduction. Lastly, we're committed to returning capital shareholders through continued dividend growth and share repurchases. We have increased our dividend for the 12th year and recently increased our share repurchase authorization with plans to execute a total of three to four billion in share repurchases by the end of this year. Now let's turn to our guidance for 2021 on slide 17. Let me start by giving you a quick update on our synergies. As Giovanni mentioned, the integration has gone very well. 
and we increased our total expected synergies to approximately $3 billion by the end of 22. We achieved about $1.4 billion in 2020 and expect the remaining synergy capture to be split evenly uh, through this year and in 22. With that in mind, and considering the momentum we saw in the business in 2020, we have non-GAAP diluted EPS guidance for 2021. Now, touching on our non-GAAP expectation at constant exchange, we expect high single-digit revenue growth over 2020 based on the strength of our inline products and the launches we are executing. We expect to sustain a high enterprise growth of approximately 8.5%. Now, I want to take a moment to touch on NSNA. In 2020, we had the opportunity to make a number of incremental and accelerated investments for our prioritized brands and product launches. Also, with COVID recovery and higher expenses due to myocardia are reflected. For 2021, we expect NSNA to increase in the low single digit as we invest in our launches and include the full year spend for myocardia. We expect mid single digit increase in R&D as we invest behind a robust pipeline, COVID recovery plans and preclinical and clinical studies and incorporate spend of myocardia. We expect our tax rate to remain about 16%. And finally, strength is minimum business. We are now increasing our non-GAAP 2021 diluted EPS from $7.35 to $7.55. I would also like to provide some color on OI&E and share count. It is likely we'll see realty income and net interest expense to roughly offset each other in 2021, resulting in net neutral OI&E. Regarding our share count, we ended 2020 with approximately $2.3 billion, about $2.3 billion shares outstanding, which will decrease based upon the 3 to $4 billion in purchase activity we're planning in the year. Now, before we move on to the Q&A session, I want to thank our teams around the world for delivering such outstanding results in 2020. These results demonstrate a resiliency of our portfolio and position us well for strong growth in 2021 and into the future. I'll now turn the call back over to Tim and Giovanni for Q&A. Thanks very much, David. Lauren, can we go for a first question, please? Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, that is star 1 to ask a question. Our comes from Jeff Meacham with Bank of America. Morning, guys. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, just have two quick ones. Uh, for Curtis, when you look at the new launches on slide 15, these are the LOE offset over time. So the question is, what do you see as a tipping point in demand for these three products, and how should we think about initial adoption for Lysacel and Idacel later this year? Development question for, for Duke Krebs, sitting in thoughts on safety tolerability. Having a black box will obviously be a big commercial driver, but it's possible that recent safety data for Zelgent and a somewhat related mechanism could directly impact you guys. I want to get your thoughts on that. Thank you. Sure. Let me, um, let me start with the question on the, um, tipping point, and then also your question with respect to Lysacel. And maybe I'll start with the question on uh, Lysacel and how we're thinking about the launch there. We're obviously very excited about the opportunity to launch uh, Lysacel in DOBCL. We expect that imminently. Um, we are obviously going to be very much focused on uh, ensuring at launch the that sites are um, activated very quickly that we're able to get patients efficiently moved on to therapy. And then, as we stated repeatedly, uh, really the tipping point with respect to is going to be um, our ability to continue to expand the CAR-T market by driving referrals and expanding the site footprint, and then ultimately being able to leverage what we believe to be a differentiated um, product profile in order to drive brand care. And so that's going to be very important. And a similar story will be for for Idacel, we're obviously we have a very strong position in um, in multiple myeloma to leverage. With respect to um, staying in hematology uh, of, of the three products that were on the slide, Reblazil, 
Um, obviously, Reblazilla is off to a very good start. We're very pleased with the launch so far. The execution for this project has gone very well, and we continue to believe Reblazilla is going to play in a very important role in both NDS and beta Palestinia. Um, as we look at um, where the where the launch is at this point, we think that thus far we had very good um, demand. Some of that demand, frankly, has been pent up. Um, and as we get into the first quarter and certainly into this year, we think we'll be tapping into the true underlying demand. But we continue to see real opportunity to grow this brand both in its labeled indication, um, as well as potentially to expand into the first line ESA naive with the command studies and ultimately potentially uh, into MF. Um, and then for Onureg, Onureg is obviously off to a very good start. As David mentioned, there remains a very high need for patients in first-line AML who've achieved the CR post-intensive chemo but aren't candidates for stem cell. Um, we believe that um, really the here is going to be to continue to drive the benefit that we see from an overall survival standpoint with Onureg. But importantly, this is a market where there is no established uh, treatment approach in AML maintenance. So um, what we're going to have to do is continue to build that market and convince physicians that um, it's um, a, a new paradigm to uh, patients and there's a real urgency to treat. And then finally, to pick up on the question on Zaposia, we are very pleased with what we have um, seen with the opportunity for Zaposia, not only in MS, but particularly in IBD. Uh, the MS launch, we think, is is going well in spite of um, the situation with COVID. We've seen good uptake from uh, physicians in terms of willingness to prescribe. Importantly, um, the percentage of physicians who now believe that Zaposia is the best S1P is very much on track with what we had hoped for. And given the data that we saw with True North, we think there's considerable opportunity for us to drive business there as well. So very excited about the opportunity with Zaposia. Maybe I'll turn it over to, um, to Summit. Thanks, uh, uh, Chris, and thanks, Jeff, for the question. Let me just start first by saying that for, the, for our typical inhibitor, Dicovacetinib, this is not a jack inhibitor. And the reason I say that is because of the specificity and selectivity in terms of targeting TIC2, downstream inhibition of IL-1223 and interferon alpha, which leads to a profile that is differentiated. We do not see the signals of uh, lab abnormalities that are generally associated with jack inhibitors. We do not see the signals uh, for VTEs that are generally associated with uh, jack inhibitors. What we have are two very well-conducted phase three trials showing remarkable efficacy. We are very pleased with the data that we've seen, meaning the primary and secondary endpoints, and we are now looking forward to the data evolving, as Giovanni mentioned on one of the slides, in, in the next generation of, of trials that are ongoing in IBD, SLE, and beyond. So we are looking forward to the readout of those trials and very pleased by we've shown. Thanks so much. Uh, Lauren, can we go to the next question, please? Our next question comes from Terrence Flynn with Goldman Sachs. Great. Uh, thanks for taking the, the question. Um, I just uh, – maybe two parts. Um, first, on Opdivo, Chris, was just wondering if you can help us think about the cadence of contribution from some of the new approvals, so Checkmate 9ER, and then maybe on the, the adjuvant side when we could start um, seeing some, some pull through there. Is this more the growth going to be weighted to the second half of the year? And then on Factor 11A Summit, um, maybe you could just opine here on, on kind of what you're hoping to see um, on the profile from the initial Phase 2 trial uh, later this year. Thank you. Let me start, Terrence, and then I'll turn it over to Summit. So, yeah, so we're we're excited for the outlook for Opdivo. Um, as was mentioned earlier in the call, we do see um, continued confidence that Opdivo is going to return to growth in 2021 and contribute meaningfully uh, as part of the I.O. franchise to company growth beyond that. What I would say to answer your question on 9ER is, first of all, 9ER needs to be put within the context of, first of all, a very um, stable business that we're starting to see in the U.S., a strong business, as you saw in the in the numbers uh, in in Q4 XUS, and then as David mentioned, we've seen good uptake in the first line lung launch uh, in the U.S. and it's still very early days outside of the U.S. 
we do see that there um, is uh, a nice opportunity with 9ER and first-line renal. Again, as we've talked about, uh, we've got a, um, an establishment with Audible Clasurevoy there, and we think that by giving this the opportunity to combine with what we believe to be a best-in-class TKI with Cabo, there's opportunity to grow that particularly getting into the favorable uh, patient population. Still very early days since we were just approved um, uh, on the 22nd. Um, and then with respect to the additional opportunities, as you know, we have de-risk launch opportunities with gastric cancer in um, in the uh, uh, first-line metastatic space, as well as in the adjuvant space, space, as well as with adjuvant bladder. We do think that those are going to be uh, more indexed to the latter half of this year and then as we get into 2022 uh, in terms of their contribution to growth. Uh, maybe with that, I'll turn it over to Dominic. Thanks, Chris, and thanks, Terrence, for the question. Uh, for factual webinar, we expect to have the data from the first of the two proof of concepts, uh, concept studies that are ongoing, uh, the first one being in the total knee replacement uh, uh, population. And there, this is a dose-ranging study, and we are evaluating safety and efficacy of the oral factual 11A single agent versus an oxyparin uh, administered subcutaneously for these subjects. So what we are trying to see is the profile that emerges from a bleeding perspective uh, whether we can have a similar or better efficacy with less bleeding. More importantly, then, uh, there will be the second study next year looking at the combination with the background therapy of the antiplatelet agents, where, again, it is very important to notice that profile, what impact it will have on bleeding. And if we are able to combine them, it opens up additional indications that we can pursue going forward. So things that we'll be watching out for defining the dose, looking at the safety, and, of course, efficacy will also be uh, a point of point to review. Thank you. Can you go to the next question, please, Laura? Our next question comes from Seamus Fernandez with Guggenheim. Seamus, are you on mute? Uh, we'll take our next question. Um, that'll come from Steve Scala with Cowan. Uh, thank you. I have two questions. First, on tick two, will Brust a large long-term cardiovascular outcomes trial to fully convince physicians that there is no CD risk? Not why not? Bristol's view is clear, but prescribers don't seem convinced. And then on Updevo, does Bristol see any risk from potential new PD-1 entrants such as Lily's Tyvid or Novartis's Tizolizumab or now the Junshu? Coherence antibody, I assume their primary angle will be priced. So, so what is the risk from that? Thank you very much. Maybe I can start off, uh, Steve, with the first question on the glass nib. Look, we have just had the readout of the uh, first phase three studies in psoriasis. Data will continue to evolve as we look at the long-term studies from psoriasis. We will continue to follow these. We have additional indications ongoing. We do not see the profile that has been described for JAK inhibitors from a MACE perspective, VTE perspective, et cetera. We we'll have to continue to evaluate. We'll have the discussions with the uh, uh, the health authorities in order to understand what profile is it that we need to further investigate. Uh, this is not a commercialized drug yet. So in terms of talking about whether the uh, prescribers are convinced or not, I think that is still uh, got to be further evaluated than we are able to present the data and share that profile fully with the community and, and hear their uh, perspective uh, with the data in hand. So I think it's too early to define what additional studies to be conducted, and we'll continue to follow that very closely. Let me pick up on the question on um, from new entry law and then particularly the concern about price. So first of all, we watch the competitive dynamics of the PDL1 marketplace extremely carefully, as you can imagine. Um, something that we've been looking at considerably um, uh, has been the question of commoditization. Uh, that's been with us really since we uh, were approved with Updevo. From the U.S. standpoint, we actually don't see considerable risk um, from from these new entrants, in part driven by a number of factors. First, um, oncology continues to be a very data-driven 
um, uh, a field in the U.S., and so we've got a wealth of data covering both Optivo and Neuroboy, which gives us confidence. Second, we've established a very strong position across tumors, and of course, we've built very significant capabilities to operate in a competitive context, and I think we're demonstrating that now in uh, both renal cell and lung cancer, for example. XUS, again, it's something that we're going to continue to uh, stay very focused on. We see that in some markets you may see some risk of commoditization, but those tend to be relatively small markets for us. Um, but in general, I, I would say we're very confident with our competitive position. We don't see uh, meaningful risk with respect to commoditization from where we sit today, um, but it's something we'll continue to monitor. Thanks, Chris. Lauren, can we go to the next one, please? Uh, we'll take our next question from Seamus Fernandez with Guggenheim. Oh, thanks. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, my phone got cut off. Um, so I wanted to just kind of walk through this strategy in multiple myeloma, given the number of mechanisms that you guys have uh, in play and, and how you see the market evolving. Um, Chris, you know, I, I think, you know, this is likely uh, falling under your auspices um, more so than anything. So it's just wondering if you could help us understand how you see the treatment of multiple myeloma evolving um, amidst the you know, transition away from uh, or, or towards government generics. Obviously, there's lots of opportunities out there by specific cell therapies, your cell mods. Um, is this simply about segmenting the market, um, you know, or uh, do you see, you know, transformational opportunities for uh, potential internal combinations? And then, you know, a bigger picture question for uh, for Giovanni. Giovanni, you know, we're, we're continuing to see um, a lot of activity on the BD front um, from your team. As we think about the, uh, uh, the the next sort of leg of opportunities, um, are you most focused on, you know, sort of phase two, three opportunities, um, and again, continuing to build out the pipeline in that regard? Uh, is it more additional legs to the stool? Just trying to um, more fully understand uh, uh, how you're continuing to, to focus um, on enhancing the pipeline and, and, and growing uh, and, and returning the, or not returning the company to growth, but extending the growth profile post one combined. Thanks, Janice, for the questions at Summit. And I mean, let's start uh, with the R&D aspect of multiple myeloma strategy, and then certainly Chris can fill in the commercial aspects of it. So as you know, beyond the image, there are four classes of medicines that are being developed in, in multiple myeloma primarily. Cell therapies, certainly the ADC that has recently been approved and more to, more to follow. There are the cell mods, and then there are going to be uh, the combinations as you have also uh, talked about. Then right now, what we're trying to do is to get to a stage where this disease, which is incurable, and in, in patients who are heavily pre-treated uh, in the fourth line plus where progression free survival remains very low with a response rate of 30% or so, we're trying to transform that disease. So from that perspective, cell therapies are going to play a major role, and that's where IBIS cell is coming in to begin with, uh, where we have shown the data, we've shown the overall response rate, we've shown the very durable and deep response, very manageable safety profile. As we look towards the next generation of molecules, whether the T-cell engagers or cell mods or ADP, T-cell engagers are going to be also very important. And as we've spoken about earlier, there could be uh, patients who may not be able to receive cell therapy and would be more appropriate in terms of being treated through the, through the T-cell engagers. Of course, there are challenges right now with the formulations that we have available. We've seen data from multiple companies coming up showing that IV administration is associated while with good efficacy. There are challenges in terms of finding the right dose and administration schedule from a safety perspective. So we have to be careful in terms of how we go forward with that. And so certainly uh, many others, and we are now investigating uh, subcutaneous for early data from, from other presentations that we've seen, that the efficacy can be maintained of the continuing to be evaluated. There are small numbers right now, but seems to go in the right direction. Third part is the cell mods, and that's where uh, we will show the first of the expansion data later this year. And depending on what the durability and the magnitude of the response are, 
we might have an opportunity to convey that to the authorities and have a discussion of how to bring it forward. To do the higher level, how to move these forward, the next stage of development is definitely going to be combinations. We've shown some of the data. If we talk about uh, um, Vidamite, for example, data at ASH uh, showed us high response rates when combining with the Valinara dexamethasone as well as Valcade with, with dexamethasone. So those are the strategies moving forward in the earlier line. We're in a similar way going to be investigating combinations with Idacel, and as the data evolves with, with the T-cell engager, we'll look for combinations. The, uh, the ultimate goal is to move cell mobs much earlier in line so that we can have uh, uh, the, the uh, comparisons versus image to be able to ultimately replace them in the longer run. And then, of course, try to move the other modalities also further up in line. But ultimately, yes, there will be segmentation of patients. Some may receive cell therapy, some may receive T-cell engagers, and there could still be an opportunity for a sequencing of these modalities. Chris, you want to add something? Actually, I think some you covered most of it. The only things I would add is, obviously, as Revlimid and Pomelos go generic, our focus is going to continue to be on bringing transformational opportunities forward. As you well know, Seamus, there continues to be consistent need, uh, particularly for patients as they get into later lines of therapy and multiple myeloma. IDSL is going to be an important um, uh, piece of that innovative pipeline that we bring forward, initially in later line therapy, and then as we as we discussed, potentially moving that into earlier lines of therapy in a broader patient population. And then, as Summit mentioned, the opportunity to launch next-generation BCMA targets with T-cell engagers and potentially the next generation of small molecules, which we think have the potential to displace today's backbone. And then, uh, over time, you could envision these newer therapies being combined and targeting different patient populations across lines of therapy. Um, and then also thinking about in the specific type of drug to the age, performance status, or preference of, of patients. So we're excited about having all of these promising modalities in our portfolio. We think it gives us a unique opportunity to build on our leadership position. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Seamus, this is Giovanni. Let me just uh, uh, rapidly answer your question on business development. So first of all, uh, I see that continuing to be uh, the central pillar of our capital allocation strategy and continue to be focused on uh, areas that are strategically aligned with our commercial presence and research efforts. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, we'll continue to look at um, uh, things that are scientifically uh, exciting and compelling, and, and uh, definitely we, we will discipline from a financial perspective. Um, you know, there, there will always be a part of our business development strategy that will be about continuing to strengthen and complement our research pipeline and early stage efforts. You've seen us doing a number of deals uh, in that space last year. Uh, I do see that continues. It's clearly our strategy. At the same time, I've been very clear, uh, J.D. Morgan, uh, in, uh, in my presentation as an example, that as we uh, continue to assess uh, later stage opportunities, uh, deals like the Myocardi deal, uh, given the right asset, the opportunity to generate value uh, and the objective to continue to strengthen the growth outlook uh, of the company in the second half of the desert deals we're always going to be interested in. Thanks, Giovanni. Or can we go to the next question, please? Our next question, question comes from Scott Wigan. Uh, great. Thanks so much. Uh, just building on an earlier question regarding uh, the tech to commercial dynamics and this kind of balance between what you some trial emerging from the jacks, but there being some perception issue with at least some physicians in terms of the, the profile of the drug. How are you thinking that trend commercial standpoint? So on the one hand, these largely addressed through your data presentation, and we can think about a quicker ramp here given the superior efficacy you're seeing relative to the oral on the market or you're anticipating this could be a bit slower launch and that there's going to be a big education component uh, to, to getting the product established, given that, you know, over time there seems to be a larger opportunity, but more that, that first you know, kind of initial stage of the, the – and the second question I had was on, on the factor 11A. I guess how much will the data from this first study reporting this year in more or decrease your confidence in the second study? And 
do we really need to think about both of these phase two programs reading out before you'll make a decision on moving the asset forward? Or based on this first study, could we could you see at least on the if the monotherapy setting uh, the product moving forward? Thank you. Chris, let me let, I'll start and then I'll turn it over um, uh, to others to comment on the second part of your question. So with respect to the opportunity that we have with TIC and um, sort of the pace of the commercial execution, like I think we're excited about the opportunity that we have here. We think that based on the data we've seen from the phase to both PSO1 and 2, we have the opportunity to establish TIC as the frontline branded world of choice uh, for these patients. Now, as, um, as it relates to how quickly we'll be able to do that, clearly this is going to be a market where we've got very compelling data versus the only world that's in the space now. So we think that there we're going to have an opportunity to educate physicians relatively quickly. Obviously, we're going to have to work through access and the like, which is part of any new launch, and that uh, will typically take a bit of time. But we think with respect to our position versus the existing rural agent, there we think we have a relatively um, a relatively uh, quick opportunity with a very, very um, um, compelling data set against the only existing player there. Now, as we think about additional opportunities to expand from there, that's probably going to take a bit more time uh, as you have competitors that have been established in this marketplace. But that's certainly uh, the way we've been thinking about it at this point. Summit? And Chris, uh, just to be very, very short, because uh, we know the time is short here and, and others uh, also have questions, we do believe that both studies uh, have individually a uh, very important role to play to define the build and the safe people far. The time difference being the readout of case studies is not too long. So I think uh, we will obviously be able to build development plans based out of the first study. Execution will probably take into account both studies. But as I said, the time difference between the readout is not that long. So execution-wise, both data sets will be important. Excellent. Can we go to the next question, please? Our next question comes from Tim Anders Research. Thank you. Uh, going back to the P1 question about commoditization. I want to ask about China specifically and uh, rose today the cost picture on the China opportunity due to NRDL and local manufacturer proliferation. I'd be curious to get your view. Is this ever going to be a market that's meaningful for Bristol or other multinationals? And just as importantly, if it's happening in China in the PD-1 category, why would it happen in other disease categories, oncology or otherwise. And then second question on Revlimid, largest product now for the company, goes off patent next year. Analysts are guessing, you know, how to erode it in the first year. We don't know if it's a billion or three billion down or what exactly. Have some clarity on, on, uh, on how to think about first year erosion. Tim, uh, thank you. Let me, uh, let me start uh, on both questions and, uh, uh, I'll ask uh, Chris and, and, and David if they want to add. So uh, on China, uh, let me say first of all, you know we have a uh, we have a relatively small business in China, but we see an opportunity to continue to strengthen our presence in that market. Particularly uh, as our pipeline continues to to progress, and we have launch opportunities going forward in China. I would uh, I would agree that from a uh, an NRDL perspective, um, you know, it is it is appropriate to be cautious because of the number uh, of PD-1 uh, agents that have been launched at the same time, including a number of local players. Uh, and um, so, I, I share the perspective uh, that the opportunity in China be uh, cautious about. I do believe, though, uh, in a couple of things. So first of all, there are examples of brands in oncology and other therapeutic areas that that uh, uh, recently have uh, uh, had a more differentiated profile with uh, local competitors that have been able to be uh, included in uh, NRDL reimbursement and, and being meaningful contributors to growth uh, in the market. So I don't think every therapeutic area is the same and every class of brands is the same, and, and specifically, in our portfolio, we have uh, truly differentiated medicines that can have a very meaningful uh, presence in China. When you look at the medium and the long term, you know, I, I think actually uh, the, the development opportunities in China will continue to go not only 
through uh, the government channel, but also over time, the development of commercial insurance for what is a what is a relatively large population of patients that would have access to that. So I, I do see that in the medium term, uh, the the composition, uh, if you if you want, of the marketplace in China. Uh, in terms of payer dynamics, will be more diversified, and I think that will strengthen opportunities across the board. So we continue to be really committed to China. With respect to uh, with respect to your question on revenue, uh, you know, you you uh, as you can imagine, uh, we have uh, a number of discussions ongoing. We have litigations ongoing with uh, with players uh, that um, that are continuing. We're we're not going to be in a position to provide multiple year uh, guidance going into the future, but I think we've been pretty clear uh, in articulating our position on the red limit uh, erosion beginning too. And uh, as, we, uh, as we've mentioned, we see the LOE portfolio of red limit and, and Pomodist representing, uh, you know, no more than less than 10% of the company by 2025. So, the, the the evolution of that business, I think it's uh, it's pretty clear. And I, you know, from my perspective, what's more important is to really look at uh, the the potable growth of our continuing business and, and the growth of the total company between now and 2025. Uh, Chris, do you have anything to to add on China? Uh, Giovanni, I think you covered it, and the only thing is that I agree with Giovanni. In the medium to long term, we see significant opportunity. The NRDL is only one of the payer channels that are available. Uh, as Giovanni mentioned, there's a uh, rapidly emerging commercial and private health care market there, um, and we think it can continue to be an important opportunity for locals and multinational companies. And I wouldn't over-extrapolate um, the dynamics from PD-1 to other therapeutic categories, just given the intense level of competition that you see in China with those products. Thanks, Chris. And Lauren, can we go to the next question, please? Our next question comes from David Reisinger with Morgan Stanley. Yes, uh, thanks very much. I have two questions. First, could you discuss why your BCMA or the cell was dropped? And second, um, Crystal's peak expectations for Reblozal, um are higher than consensus. What do you think investors underappreciate? Thank you. Maybe I can start off on Orbital and then certainly pass it on uh, for for uh, uh, Chris to comment on the result. For Orbital, so we always look at our portfolio overall and ensure that we are going to develop the best medicines and take them forward. Orbital, as you know, is a BCNA-directed cell therapy. We have Hydrocell as a front runner, which has the data and has been uh, submitted for, for uh, review and approval both in, uh, uh, in the U.S. as well as in EU. When we look at the overall evolution of the data and we put it in terms of the landscape and the evolution of data from outside as well, we believe that Idacel fits uh, perfectly in, in terms of further development. And overall platform becomes very important for the next generation of car cell development rather than the medicine, the, the particular uh, medicine itself. So therefore, we have not taken Orbital forward as a, as a, as in the current form, and we'll use the platform for evolution of the cell therapies. David, with respect to Rebelzil, in terms of the opportunity, the way I think about it is our initial indication in MDS, remember, that's a relatively smaller percentage of the overall MDS incidence. So in the U.S., for example, the incidence of MDS is roughly 21,000. The on-label population is a relatively small percentage of that, and that's because the indication obviously focuses on, on those patients who are lower risk, ESA eligible, RS positive, and in the second line. So the way we think about it is, first and foremost, we've got to continue to drive utilization in the existing indication we have. We think there's continued opportunity there. Then, obviously, there's an opportunity to expand um, within NDS, and that the command study gives us a meaningful opportunity to both include those patients who are RS negative and move into earlier lines of therapy. Um, and then, obviously, beyond NDS, there are other opportunities, beta-thal, which is on-label today, but then also we have additional opportunities in areas like myelofibrosis. 
Warren, can we go to the next question, please? Next question comes from Ronnie Gallum with Bernstein. And good morning, and uh, thanks for sitting in. Uh, two questions, if I may. Uh, first, about uh, the party restructuring, you mentioned your support for the patients from, um, from paying out of pocket. In Congress, it's got 20 or 30 percent responsibility for pharma and the catastrophic part of the uh, of the insurance, and, and obviously for giving your portfolio in your oral oncology medicine, it it will be material. Um, I was wondering if you can just give us a quick update where you believe the the um, the, the baby standing, you know, where you're concerned around that issue heard, and is this considered staff? And second, as we think about the kind of IL-23 tick-two mechanism coming to IBD. I was wondering if you were able to compare the kind of the efficacy level you're able to achieve with the oral versus the antibodies, and if the if the gaps are small enough that you think could be head to head with the L23, assuming that mechanism becomes as dominant as, as it could be in, in that of those indications. Uh, thank you. Let me start with your your question on on uh, part D redesign. So first of all, uh, you know there is a real need to think about. Uh, redesigning benefits in a way that is uh, more more aligned with the treatments of today, and, and most importantly, uh, that uh, addresses significant affordability issues that are faced by patients because of inappropriate design of benefits and, and the high copay and the high out-of-pocket exposures that patients have. You know, I think it's premature to say exactly where potential legislation in Congress would evolve. Um, you know, we've been very clear that we are supportive of uh, thinking about the evolution of the, of the design. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think when you look at our portfolio, uh, you, you know, there is, you know, we have a very diversified portfolio. So uh, depending on how the, the coverage gap uh, contribution of the industry evolves, uh, that's currently 70%. And, you know, that may actually have an impact on, on aliquots, should that be reduced? Uh, you know, on the catastrophic side, you are right. Some of the specialty uh, oral medicines would be impacted by changes in in uh, that area. So it really depends. And, and uh, you know, when you have a diversified portfolio, that may be areas that are impacted uh, negatively. There, there are areas potentially impacted positively in terms of patients, but also in terms of the contribution we already make. So when we look at, um, you know, concrete proposals, we'll be able to assess the impact on our portfolio better. But I think it's important to remember that different medicines in our portfolio today are impacted differently in, in the various phases of coverage in Medicare. Uh, Chris? Sure. Um, so, Ronnie, we're obviously very enthusiastic about the opportunity that we had to play with potentially multiple drugs in IBD initially with Zaposia and then pending the data with TIC. Um, uh, potentially an opportunity with Jucravacitinib as well. The thing to keep in mind is that while IBD is a competitive space, there continues to be a need for efficacious drugs that have a manageable safety profile. Ultimately, we believe that uh, the competitive dynamics are going to play out along a few dimensions. Obviously, efficacy, safety, route of administration is very important here. And because this is a chronic disease where patients are going to cycle through multiple products, we think having a novel mechanism of action is important. And so when you look at the two broad categories of, of treatments that are available today, notably biologics and JAK inhibitors, we think our initial foray into this space with Zaposia uh, is favorably positioned. Um, for example, we think Zaposia demonstrates efficacy that is competitive with biologics in an oral formulation with an improved safety profile, certainly versus the TNF inhibitors. So we think we play very well there. And similarly, with respect to the JAKs, um, suppose the administrative efficacy is generally competitive with JAKs as well, and again, an improved safety profile. And across both of those categories, being a novel S1P in the space we think is going to be important. Thanks, Chris. I know we're running short on time, but I think we have a few minutes extra maybe to get to a few more questions. If we can go to the next one, please, Lauren. Thank you. Our next question comes from Louisa Hector with Berenberg. Hello. Thank you for taking my questions. Uh, one, just a, a clarification on the inventory build. Um, you gave the numbers quarter on quarter. Can you confirm the year-on-year -year impact? And then also on the, the TIC2, um, you know, we've seen a very positive 
headline press releases in psoriasis. Um, I'm wondering when we might see the data, how soon you could file, and whether you expect an FDA panel. And just a quick comment, perhaps, because in the press releases, you do mention the secondary endpoints, um, some were met, which implies some were not met. And I just wondered how crucial they were for the competitive profile of the drug. Thank you. And so on, on the first question, the year-over-year impact is about $200 million in the fourth quarter of inventory build, and that was mainly related to Elephas and uh, Redlamed. We expect all of that to come out in the first quarter. This, so, David, I can take the second part of the question around the Kovacina very quickly. In terms of the presentation of the data, we anticipate uh, presenting the first of the two studies uh, at AD later uh, this, uh, I think it's in the second quarter, it's uh, in April. And then the second one, we have to find that appropriate conference in the second half of the year so that we can share the data more broadly uh, so that investigators can share it with the community. Second, about the filing, we are working very uh, diligently, and it is a priority for us, so we do anticipate filing quite rapidly. And, of course, as soon as we have the producer date, we will be broadly communicating that and sharing that information with you and others. Third, about the FDA panel, we obviously can't comment on that. We don't know that. Uh, we have to continue to have the dialogue with regulatory agencies, and they will ultimately decide where they sit on this. Uh, so looking forward to, to that conversation with the health authorities. And last one on the secondary endpoints. As we said, we've met the primary endpoints and the secondary endpoints. We are very comfortable with the data that we've seen, showing the superiority not only against uh, placebo, but also against uh, Otesla. And uh, we've looked at it from a, a PASI 75 perspective, SCGA01 perspective, PASI 100 perspective. So we are very comfortable with the data that we've seen thus far from both primary and secondary endpoints. Can we go to the last one, please? Our next question comes from Andrew Baum with City. Thank you. Um, two questions on the Factor 11A inhibitor, please. Um, first, I'm interested in how quickly you can initiate a Phase 3 program. I'm assuming, given the high probability that, that you and I both put on the probability of success in the Phase 2, um, the planning for a phase three program has already begun given how lengthy many of these programs are going to be. I just want to confirm that that's the case. Um, I'm assuming you've also identified sites as well given both the company's previous experience. And then second, um, you've previously spoken to uh, ESER, the Q-Connery syndrome, some of the areas that you want to go on the arterial side. Do you see any subpopulation of atrial fibrillation where you could go head-to-head versus adequate? or should we disregard the atrial fibrillation population completely from any phase three trial program? Thank you. Um, thanks, uh, Andrew. Let me start with the second question first. I don't think you should disregard atrial fibrillation from any trial further. Those are the discussions that we still need to have, and of course the conversations will need to be had both with our, with our uh, collaborator, uh, Jensen, as well as the regulatory authorities that the appropriate competitor uh, would be in the right population. So more to come on that as we gather the data and the conversations gear up. In terms of starting again the phase three studies, one, we need to see the data first from the first trial of the totally replacement. Both of the companies, of course, uh, want to proceed as quickly as possible, and, and we certainly uh, uh, honor the excitement that is around there. And, of course, these are a priority uh, module that we need to move forward so we will be able to initiate phase two trials quite rapidly. You very correctly said both companies have uh, the expertise in conducting these trials, and with the prior experiences that we have, we will be able to initiate very quickly. But certainly looking forward to see the first data. Uh, I cannot share timelines yet because we have to obviously uh, collaborate with Jensen to be able to define those, but as soon as those are available, those will be shared in due course as well. Thank you, Samat, and uh, thanks, everyone. Let me just... Uh, uh, make a couple of comments. First of all, let me say I, I, I uh, uh, am excited that 2020 was uh, a really important year for us. It was a great year, the first year for us as a combined company. Our performance was strong uh, during the challenging year from so many different points of view. And uh, we've established a really strong foundation for our, for our new company. There is a solid momentum in our business going into 2021. 
uh, and uh, that's reflected in our outlook for 21 and the guidance we provided today. Um, we feel really good about the company that we're building, uh, the way in which we are executing and, and delivering on the value drivers of the acquisition of Celgene. Um, we uh, see uh, all significant opportunities for uh, sustained long-term growth ahead and the acceleration of the renewal of our portfolio. And we look forward to continuing to update all of you as we make progress by continuing to remain focused on execution and advancing the many priorities we have as a company. I know the team will be available to answer any additional questions, and I'd like to thank you for uh, participating in our call today. Thank you. And that does conclude today's conference. We thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.